Please remain standing for the reading of God's word. From Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you in my mother's breasts. On you I was cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted away within my breast." My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help. Come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nation shall worship before you. For the kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. Good morning. I invite you to open in your Bibles to Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15, verses 33 through 47. Before I get started and I forget, I do want to say a special thank you to everyone who came and helped us move uh, yesterday. There are many things still in boxes, but we are getting there. And so we're so thankful that, yes, the Lord did open up the door for us to come and to live here on the west side of Columbus. We've been living downtown. Um, and God has just been faithful every step of the way to continue to bless us. And I know that he'll continue to bless our church as well, uh, even this morning as we look at 
Mark chapter 15, verses 33 through 47. We've been walking through the book of Mark. We started kind of in chapter 9 and moved our way through uh, this passage. Today, what we want to see is something really unbelievable happens. Something totally unbelievable happens in Mark chapter 15, verses 33 through 47. Now, it's something for those of us who are around church and those kind of things. It's the part that we're all really familiar with. Jesus dies But the reason why that's so unbelievable is because we believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And he is one with God. We believe that Jesus is, in fact, God. That God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so what we are saying as we read this passage and believe that it is true is that God died. God died to rescue sinners who did not deserve it. There is a reality of that that we have to see. That is almost just too good to be true. It seems almost a little bit unbelievable. As we walk through this, I think Mark is seeing that as well. He gives us a lot of really good reasons why we must believe this truth and what it comes about and what it looks like. But what we want to see is that Jesus did, in fact, die. When he did, he caused the death of several other things. And this morning we'll look at three of those things. One is the death of the divide between God and man. We will see that the curtain is torn and that there's no longer separation between God and man, but that through Jesus, the God-man, both being fully God, fully man, he has made a way that we can have relationship with God. That there is the death of denial That we can't deny that Jesus is the Son of God because he proves his Messiahship. He proves that he is the Christ by being the perfect sacrifice for sin. And finally, we'll see the death to doubt. That we will see that he has given us every reason that we can believe that he has died and risen again. And we'll walk through this passage together. So before we do that, let's look at the passage in its entirety Mark chapter 15, verses 33 through 47. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran and filled the sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come down to take him. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion, who stood facing him, saw that this way, he breathed his last. He said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger, and Mary and and of Joseph and and Salome. And when he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with Jesus, with him to Jerusalem. When evening comes, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that, that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph brought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in linen, in the linen shroud, 
and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled the stone against the entrance of the tomb, and Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Well, this passage is is one that I think many of us are familiar with. Even if you're not a church-going person, you've probably heard that Jesus died on the cross. Maybe you don't know why that happened, but Jesus dying on a cross is something that a lot of us are familiar with in our culture. We see crucifixes with Jesus still on them all over the place. This is something that we know a lot about. But as we dive into the text, I think we get to see even more of what is happening. That there is a death to more than just Jesus But first we want to see is that there is a death to the divide, a death to divide between God and man. In verses 33 through 37, as we just take a little more, or excuse me, through 38, just took a little more honed in look. So the sixth hour had come, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. So the sixth hour would have been about noon. So they kind of started their day uh, when daylight would happen. And so the sixth hour is about the middle of the day, and the sixth hour is noon. And there was darkness over the land between noon, and that would mean... About 3 p.m. Well, as you can probably figure out, that's weird. That there would be darkness at that time. That's not a normal time when there would be darkness. And so we don't really know what caused the darkness. If it was just intense kind of clouds that come over or some kind of weird, you know, uh, astrological event. We're not really sure what happens. But there is a darkness that happens in this moment as Jesus dies for sin. And there's actually a passage in the Old Testament in the book of Amos Uh, Chapter 8, verse 9, it says, And on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. And Jews familiar with the Old Testament, they knew these texts really, really well. They would remember that passage in Amos. And that passage is about the judgment of God being poured out on people for their sin. But what's happening in the moment is that the judgment of God is not being poured out on the people for the sin, but it's being poured out on Jesus. Because they have sinned against God and rebelled against him, they deserve his righteous judgment and wrath. But God and his love has sent Jesus instead, and Jesus is enduring the wrath of God. And so he makes darkness come over at noon. And it's showing us that that is what is happening. It's giving us this kind of manifestation that spiritually God is judging Jesus in our place instead of us. And when this happens, Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And as he does that, we see that that he is quoting from Psalm 22 which is the scripture reading that we had this morning. In Psalm 22, which was written long before these events happened, it starts off, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I believe Jesus is quoting the first line of that psalm to bring us to mind all the other things that are happening. But he does that, and and at the time, while this is written in Greek, because that's a way that they would have written at this time, Jesus probably yelled out in Aramaic or even in Hebrew. And the reason why I think Mark, for a moment, gives us that original language is because he's trying to help you know, like, why are these people thinking Elijah is coming down? Like, why are they talking about Elijah? And you can think Eloi, Eloi, or Eli, Eli, if you yelled it in Hebrew. Sounds a little bit like Elijah, Elijah. And then we talked about last week, Jesus is up on a cross and he can't breathe. So to do these kind of things, because the way that cross had you strung out, you wouldn't be able to breathe. He's pushing himself out. So maybe they're not fully able to understand him and they're saying well maybe he's calling for Elijah and he's saying Elijah Elijah 
what, come and help me. Come and help me. He's calling down Elijah. So wait, let's see if Elijah comes. Because these people have seen Jesus do these really amazing things. And the idea was that Elijah was going to come back. Because in the Old Testament, Elijah was a prophet who never actually had a physical death. But rather, God just took him up in a chariot of fire. And so the thought was that when the Messiah would come, that Elijah would either come to precede him, or Elijah would come and help those in particular who were suffering. And so the idea that these Jewish people are sitting around, they're thinking, well, maybe he's going to come and alleviate the suffering of Jesus. And that'll prove that maybe he is the Messiah. So just like, hold on, just wait a minute. Let's, let's see what happens. And that's the idea that's going to happen. But Jesus has already told them that Elijah already did come. Elijah came in a spiritual kind of way, in a metaphorical kind of way, through another man named John the Baptist. In the beginning of the Gospels, John the Baptist comes, who's actually a cousin of Jesus, and he starts preaching a baptism of repentance of sin, and he's making the way straight for, for Jesus to come. See, Elijah came through John the Baptist, and when he came, he didn't come to alleviate the suffering of Christ. But he came to make straight the path to preach this baptism of repentance so that we might alleviate your suffering. That the Christ might alleviate my suffering. The suffering of sin before a holy God. So instead of enduring the wrath of God on us, it is poured out on Jesus. Elijah did already come. They just didn't have eyes to see or ears to hear. Elijah came announcing the good news that the Christ had come and Jesus was that Christ. Like we said last week, there was nothing that was going to stop his suffering. This is a part of what it means to be the Christ, that he would suffer for sin and sinners like me and you. And so these people, they still don't get it and they're thinking, whoa, 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 maybe he'll be alleviated from his suffering if Elijah will come. But instead, that's not what he's saying. Instead, he's quoting Psalm 22 Verse 1, and it was common practice. These songs were like songs. It'd be kind of like if somebody just hummed a first line of a song to you. You ever have that happen? And then a little bit later, it's like stuck in your head. You know, like for me, I have a four-year-old, so for me, it's like, how, how the handyman, which is a YouTube video, right? It's just like, all I have to hear is one line, and then I know the rest of the song. That kind of thing happens with these people, and he would say that first line. And they would know these songs from the Psalter, which is what we call the book of Psalms, so well that they would actually know all of the psalm. They'd be able to start singing it kind of in their head. They would know what was happening. And we were reading through that psalm. We read passages like Psalm 22, verse 7 through 8. It says, All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me and they wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him for he delights in him. Which sounds an awful lot alike the passage from last week as it says the passerbys came by and they derided him or they mocked him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would rebuild the temple in three days, save yourself. If God is really for you, won't he deliver you? Or passages like Psalm twenty two eighteen, it says they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Last week we talked about the Roman soldiers have stripped him naked, and at the foot of the cross they're casting lots to decide who will get his clothing. In the Psalm it tells us they have pierced my hands and my feet. And he talks about 
his pain and his suffering. He talks about the dryness of his mouth as they're offering him up sour wine, but Jesus won't take the wine. There's something I really didn't even talk about last week. He won't take it because he refuses to go because it was kind of a narcotic. It was a little more than just a little wine. It was meant to, to, to numb your pain, but Jesus wanted to come into the crucifixion with a clear mind. And he didn't want anything inebriating him as he endured our sin, so that in this moment when he squeezed and pressured, what comes pouring out of his mouth? It's the scriptures, Psalm 22. And it would have meant to draw their minds to what's happening in Psalm 22, but here's what we need to remember, is the psalm doesn't just stop there. We need to remember how it ends. In Psalm 22, verses 27 to 31, it says this, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn." that he has done it. That's how that psalm ends. The psalm ends saying people from all over the world and families from all over the world are going to come before the Lord and they are going to be able to be righteous before God. Why? Because Jesus, the righteous one, is going to die in their place. Those people yet unborn, that's you. That's me. We are those people in this moment as Jesus dies on the cross for sin. We're not born yet. And he is saying people who are not yet born are going to hear this good news and they're going to believe it. And they're going to be changed and now we're going to win them over. Jesus is crying out in victory when everything looks like it's lost. That's what he is doing. Because the divide between God and man is being torn down in verse 38. And it says, And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. In the Jewish temple at that time, they would have had two curtains. We think this one is probably talking about that second one. One kept everybody that wasn't a Jewish male out of the inside. So women and Gentiles could only get so far and they had to stand behind one curtain. Then, even if you were a Jewish male and you got into that next one, then there was another place called the Holy of Holies that nobody could enter except for one priest who'd be chosen by lot and he could only do it one day of the year and he'd have to go through all these sacrifices to do these things because that's where God dwelt. That was the understanding. It was this symbolism of God dwells here and nobody is holy enough to go into this holy of holy a place that they would go and the thought was that they went in there that they would die if they didn't do the things that God would have them to do. And what is happening in that moment is when Jesus dies on the cross for sin, when Jesus pays our penalty, the judgment of God pulls, pours out on him and him alone, you know what takes place? God is no longer separated from man. Because Jesus pays the price for our sin, that curtain gets torn in two. And when that curtain gets torn in two, there is no more divide. In that temple, the dwelling place of God, which is what the temple is supposed to represent, is no longer just this one place, but it becomes 
me and you, because God comes to dwell in us. So to help us kind of remember and really kind of get this, I want to give us some Old Testament background, and we can do that in under five minutes with this really cool video, if it plays. And if this video doesn't play, I'll just do it. It's okay. If you could go back to the city of Jerusalem during Bible times, the biggest thing you'd see is the temple. This beautiful building was designed by King David and built by King Solomon, and they believed that it was the home of the God of the universe. Wait, I thought God's home was in heaven. Well, the whole point of this earthly temple is that it's the place that overlaps with God's heavenly home. The temple is where God lives and rules all creation as king. That's cool, but even Solomon, who built the temple, didn't believe that it could contain the God of the universe, right? Yeah. The building was just a symbol, and it pointed to the fact that all of creation is God's temple. And that's actually what the first page of the Bible, Genesis 1, is all about. Really? It says that creation is God's temple? Well, it doesn't need to say it. The whole story shows it. In Genesis 1, God creates an ordered world out of a dark wasteland by speaking in a series of seven days. Then on the seventh day, God's presence fills creation as he takes up his rest and rule. Similarly, the tabernacle and later the temple were built and dedicated in a series of seven speeches and seven days, after which the priest or king could rest and rule in God's presence. Ah, so all of creation is where God intends to dwell. It's like his temple. Exactly. Now, turn the page to Genesis 2 and we get another portrait of creation. This one focuses in on the land. And in the center of the land is a region called Eden, which in Hebrew means delight. And in the middle of delight, God plants a garden in which God and humanity live together. And that's why the temple was modeled after the garden, filled with imagery of gold and flowers. The menorah symbolized the tree of life. It's the place where God dwells with his people. Oh, got it. And check this out. In the temple, the Israelite priests and Levites were to work and to keep the temple in God's presence. This is exactly the job description given to humanity in the Garden of Eden. So these humans were the first priests. But instead of ruling with God, they wanted to rule on their own terms, and they're exiled from the Garden Temple. And like Adam and Eve, Israel's leaders also wanted to rule on their own terms, and they too were exiled. The temple was destroyed, and this left them wondering, did God give up on Israel? Will God bring about a new creation? Well, the biblical prophets anticipated the day when God would create a new temple with a new priesthood. That's when God's presence would fill all of creation. And when the Israelites returned to the land, they did rebuild the temple. But that temple didn't turn out the way the prophets hoped. In fact, later Israelite prophets said that this temple was hopelessly corrupt. So they're still waiting for the ultimate temple. And here we come to the story of Jesus. He said that through him, God's presence and rule was coming into our world in a new way. And he presented himself as a new kind of priest. But Jesus wasn't a priest, and he didn't work in the temple. Right. Jesus said that God's presence, his rest and rule, was filling the world through his own life, death, and resurrection. Jesus was claiming that he was the true temple, and this new temple would expand out to include all of creation. That's a really big claim. And it got even bigger. 
After his resurrection, Jesus said that God's presence would come to dwell in and among his followers so that they would become mini temples. Communities of people where God rests and rules. Exactly. This is the Bible's vision of the church, which is described as a temple. Not a building, but people. Yeah, like when Peter says, you all are living stones built up as a temple for God's spirit to dwell. So, at the end of the story, do we ever get a new physical temple? Well, not exactly. What we see is a renewed cosmic temple, just like Genesis 1. And this new creation doesn't need a temple building because through Jesus, all creation is now the place where God rests and rules the world with his people. This is a helpful reminder of what the Old Testament has been, had been teaching. And what we had talked about when, when on his trial. So if you're not convinced, I would just point you to say, Mark hasn't let you forget about Jesus' claim to be the temple. In his trial, that's the accusation. He said he could rebuild the temple in three days. And then when he's on the cross hanging, their, their mocking says, well, you who said you could rebuild the temple in three days... The truth is, in the book of John, we're told that the body, that the, the temple that he's talking about was his own body. And that the body, that, or the temple that he would rebuild would be when he rose from the dead. And that the promise is now that God lives in us by his spirit. That if we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we are justified by faith. And in that moment, when you become a Christian, you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. You become a dwelling place of God. That's what the Bible teaches. Now, the question that we all should be asking is, what in the world does that have to do for my everyday life? Why does that matter for Monday morning? And here's why. Because if you're the temple of the holy and living God, and your other brothers and sisters in Christ are too, when you gossip or slander another brother or sister in Christ, you slander and gossip against the temple of God. When you hate someone or are angry with them, you are angry with somebody who has the dwelling presence of God. When you lust and fall into sexual immorality, you sin against your own body, is what the Apostle Paul tells us, which is the dwelling place in the temple of God. And it turns up the pressure on sin and difficulty because all of a sudden we have to live as if God is not hidden behind a curtain, but God is actually here with us in the everydayness of life. But that's not all it means. See, it also means that Christ is in you right now and he has promised to help you in those struggles. It means that when you are overcome by temptation and difficulty, you're not fighting alone. You don't have to go into some kind of physical place to try to get to God, but God is right there with you in the moment to help you fight against sin. That you have direct access to God, that you're no longer separated, and that there has been death to the divide between God and man through Jesus. The Apostle Paul says it like this in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, picking up in verse 16. He says, For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, 
and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved Let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Since we have these promises, the promise is that because Jesus died for you, he now dwells within you. And that promise then means that you can go and seek after holiness. You can be different pastor, an older pastor, tell me just the other day, he said, Josh, we have the greatest job in the world. We get to tell people that there is forgiveness for sin in Jesus. And he said, you know what else? We get to tell them they don't have to be a jerk anymore. (laughs) That's what he said. He said, not only did Jesus save you from sin, but you can be different. You can change. You're not stuck and trapped in the things that you think you're stuck and trapped in. That doesn't mean it's going to happen easily or even overnight. But God has promised to help you. And that's an amazing thing. So let's live knowing that we can have victory over sin because Jesus died. And when he died, he declared that victory. As he quoted from Psalm 22, you see, he died victoriously as the son of God. And in that, he had a struck death to denial. See, what Mark shows us in verse 39, it says this. And when the centurion, which is a Roman soldier, who stood facing him, saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. Now in the book of Mark, Jesus has been called the son of God four other times. Twice by a divine voice. So at the beginning in verse Mark 1, or, yeah, Mark 1 verse 11, he, at Jesus' baptism, a voice speaks from heaven and says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Then again in chapter 9 verse 7 at the transfiguration, God the Father again appears and through a voice from heaven says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And then we have some demons in chapter 3 verse 11. And then later in um, chapter, I lost it. Uh, 5 verse 9, we have demons saying, Jesus, the Son of God, stay away from us. But you know what never happens in the book of Mark until this moment? Like we're almost done. There's only like a couple verses after this. Is a human being never says, this is the Son of God. Mark purposely has us, the first time that a human being says those words, truly, this is the Son of God, is the mouth of, of a Gentile soldier. It's a non-Jewish person. This soldier, who should have been so far from God and so far from the truth, he's the first one in Mark's gospel who tells us, truly, this was the Son of God. Seeing the way that Jesus died. And I, and I have to believe this is evidence of what is getting ready to happen because that divide has, has, has been struck down and it is no longer God can now come dwell with everyone, not just this one ethnic group of people, not just the Jews, but with everybody in the entire world. Those who put their faith and trust in Jesus can have a relationship with God, and this soldier is one of the first ones. Now, at the same time, I think we need to ask the question, what happened 
that this soldier would come to the conclusion that this was the Son of God. And I think it's so interesting. The big reveal in the book of Mark that truly he is the Son of God, which is what Mark has been trying to prove this whole time, doesn't come at the resurrection. You would think like when the guy raises from the dead, like that's the proof. The proof that Mark gives us is that it's his death. His death is what proves that he died for sin, that he is the Christ, the, the, the one who has come. And so what about this death proves that? The reality is, is that in crucifixion, people didn't typically give out a loud cry and then die. They would die of pure exhaustion. So your ability to cry out before you died just wasn't possible. But rather, you would be crucified and you would die slowly, very slowly. And you would die with no ability to draw breath, let alone shout the way that Jesus shouts. In Mark, or excuse me, in John 19.30, what Jesus shouts is, it is finished. It is complete. It is perfect. It is done. It is over. What I've come to accomplish has been accomplished. Jesus is shouting a shout of victory. He is referencing Psalm 22, which is this psalm of victory of how all of the world will now have access to God. Jesus dies in a victorious kind of way, and the centurion looks upon it and says, truly, this is the Son of God. Matthew and Luke tell us that he yields or gives up his spirit. See, Jesus doesn't die because he can't just stay alive any longer. He dies willingly. He gives up his life so that you might live. And in Matthew 27, verses 51 through 54, we read this. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split, and the tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, that they went into the holy city and appeared to many. And when the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. Yeah, I think that would do it. If when you died, dead people got up and started walking around, I think people are going to say, there's something special about that guy. And the earth shakes and rocks split in half. It's kind of a big deal. And that's what's happening as Jesus dies. These people come and they raise from the dead. And they're able to appear to many. And surely this is who it is. What an amazing thing. That is the death of Jesus that shows us that he is the Son of God. And that's because that's the argument that Mark has been trying to make. That Jesus is the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, of Psalm 22, of Psalm 69 that's foretold in the Old Testament. So he could not and would not avoid his suffering and his death because the suffering, his death, is what made him the Christ. So what does that mean for us? What is our identifier? If his identifier, what makes him the Christ, is not his his conquering, but his death, and, and crying out and seeing that his death is the victory, what is our marker? How do people look at us and know that we're different, that we're not like the rest of the world, that something supernatural is happening inside of our hearts? And I want to say this, one of the things that we see that is different about the Christian than the rest of the world is not that we only rejoice in the good things, but Christians have the ability to rejoice in suffering. 
Does that identify your life? In the midst of your pain, of your difficulty, of your suffering, can you still rejoice and have joy and have fullness of joy? Or maybe I can ask the question of this. In those moments, where does your help come from? In the moments of difficulty, in the moments of sorrow, in the moments of pain, where does your help come from? Where do you run to? What do you want? Do you run to the TV because it's a place to escape? Do you run to drugs and alcohol because they just numb away the pain? Do you run to sin and anger and just outbursting and try to push everybody else away? Or are you like the psalmist in Psalm 121, 1 through 2 that tells us, I lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. When you are squeezed, when you're under pressure, where do you run? Where does your help come from? And are you able to rejoice in suffering? I was once told, I think probably a middle schooler, I said, when you squeeze a bottle of toothpaste, what do you expect to come out? Toothpaste? When you squeeze an orange, what do you expect to come out? Orange juice. When you squeeze a Christian, what do you expect to come out? I want you to listen to the things that come out of Jesus. Physical suffering, mocking by other people, and enduring the wrath of God. He is being squeezed by the extreme pressure and here's what we have recorded. These are the words of Jesus. Mark 15, 34. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? A quotation from Psalm 22, a psalm of victory. Luke 23, 34. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. In John nineteen thirty, it is finished. When Jesus is squeezed... When the pressure is on and difficulty comes, Jesus' gut response, his response that just comes pouring out of his very heart is, God, you have the victory. Yes, because of this, many families all over the world are going to come to know you. That's what he quotes in Psalm 22. God, forgive them. Forgive them because they don't know what they do. Might you put on them the forgiveness of sin that I'm winning right here, right now. It is finished. No more work is to be done. They don't have to earn their way. They don't have to be good enough. I did it for them. It is finished. That's what comes pouring out of the very heart of Christ when he's squeezed under the pressures of life. And that's what it means to live by faith in the Son of God who loves you and gave himself up for you. It is saying, when I'm under the pressures of life, of my own sin, a physical burden, a financial distress, whatever it is that is coming into my life, I am going to choose to follow Jesus by faith and do something that's unbelievable and unexplainable to the world, and I will rejoice in my sufferings. Because I know that they'll produce hope and endurance, that they will not put me to shame. That's what it means to live by faith. Not that you'll, all your problems will go away. Not that you're trying to live your best life now. Not that you're going to get all of a sudden all these material possessions because you do the right thing or put some kind of karma, good stuff into the world. No, 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 no. But you're going to say, my victory is in eternity. My help comes from the Lord. 
and I will glorify God and no matter what my circumstances are. Jesus proclaims victory and he leaves no doubt that he is the Christ. And luckily for us, the end of Mark 15, Mark doesn't either. We read in these verses, picking up in verse uh, 40, it says, There were also women looking on from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him, and they were and they were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, which again is a Roman soldier, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he had learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph brought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud, laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of a rock, and he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. And Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. Basically, Mark there provides for you three witnesses. The women, Joseph of Arimathea, and also this centurion, that all are testifying together, three witnesses, that Jesus was in fact dead. Now here's why this was an issue in the current moment and the current time. Because in the first century, you had Christians doing really crazy things like dying for their faith. So you've got this group of people that you have to deal with who are so convinced that this guy rose from the dead, that he died and then rose again, that they were, in fact, willing to do it themselves. Now, granted, just because somebody dies for something doesn't make it true. We see people die for silly things all the time. We can think of things like Jonestown, where Jim Jones convinced a bunch of people to, to commit suicide, right, because he was a cult leader. People will die for what they believe to be true. But I want to submit to you this. People don't die for something they know is false. Right? Nobody's doing that. There's just nothing to win if I'm going to die for something that I know is not true. So you've got to deal with then, these people clearly think this is true. So, okay, we've got to think of a way to explain this whole resurrection thing. How do we deal with this? Because clearly these people believe it so much that they're willing to die for, their, for this whole thing. And so there started to be some explanations, right? Oh, well, maybe Jesus didn't die, but someone else did. Somebody else was, was crucified there. There was actually one that, uh, uh, that got circulated around by uh, Gnostics, which is a, a term that came later, of, of people who claimed to follow Jesus but didn't really fall, follow Jesus because they just couldn't believe that God would let his son die. And they believed that Simon of Serene died instead. You know the guy who helped pick up the cross? Like somewhere along there, like this guy is bearing the cross of Jesus, and the Roman soldiers are just like too enthusiastic, and they're just like, wham, pa ka 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 and they put him up, and Jesus just like sneaks out of there. You know, he's just gone. And this other dude just dies on, on his behalf. But that was like a real story that was going around. And, like, and so then Jesus can like appear later, and it looks like he rose from the dead, but it was actually Simon who died. Well, Mark is saying, no, 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 no. These three women, Mary Magdalene, Mary the, the mother of James, and the mother of Joseph, and, and Salome, who spent time with Jesus, they ministered to him. They served him. They knew what he looked like. They knew he was like they were there, and they saw that he died. 
they saw that he died on the cross. It wasn't Simon. It wasn't somebody else. Jesus was on that cross. Okay, okay, so that doesn't work. What about maybe he's on the cross, but he doesn't really die. He just like appears to be dead. He kind of looks dead. I mean, after all, we see he dies a little bit quicker than the normal person who gets crucified. So maybe he wasn't really dead. They just got him off the cross before he really had died, and then they just like, you know, hit him out for a little bit, and then he rises from the dead. Well, that's where our centurion friend came in, a soldier. His job was literally to kill people. He knows when people are dead. In the book of John, chapter 19, verses 31 through 37, it tells us this. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. And he who saw it bore witness. His testimony is true. And he, knows, and he knows that he is telling the truth. That you may also believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says that they will look on him whom they have pierced. See, John tells us the centurion goes and he inspects Jesus just to make sure that he's dead. He takes a spear and he jabs it into his side to stab him in the heart. He is dead. The Romans have nothing to win by this. There's no reason they should like lie for Jesus and his, his little ragtag group of followers. He's dead. They know that he's dead. So no, Jesus can't just maybe appear to be dead. It kind of looked like he's dead. They brought him in, then they brought him back. And he never really died. No, Jesus really did die. And the third kind of thing that was used to say, I don't know, is maybe these ladies just got the wrong tomb. You know, Jesus went... He dies, he gets laid in a tomb, but, you know, maybe we just got the wrong one. We went to go check the tomb, we got a little lost, and it was empty. But here's the problem with that. They saw him be laid in the tomb. And Joseph of Arimathea, who is a member and a respected member of the Jewish council, the Sanhedrin, who helped rule between the Romans and the Jews, he had some street cred. He was a secret disciple, according to John. And he was, in fact, looking for the kingdom of God, meaning he was seeking to, 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 to follow Jesus. He was looking for the Messiah. And in fact, in Luke, it says he did not vote for Jesus to be put to death. He did not cast his lot to do that. But this well-respected member said, nah, he was in my tomb. And I saw that stone get rolled. And that's where they went. And it's not just any random unmarked tomb. This is the tomb of a wealthy and respected person. It's a tomb that would matter. It's a tomb that's going to stick out. You're not going to get the wrong one. They went to the right tomb, and when they rolled back the stone, it was already rolled back. But when they went and they looked inside, it was empty. Jesus had risen from the grave. And the other thing, if I can just encourage and strengthen your faith, because this is everything. If you do not believe that Jesus rose bodily from the dead, you're, you're not a Christian. A Christian must believe that. It's a part of the gospel. It's what it means to be a Christian. One of the things that lends to the authenticity of the gospels is that, a tr- is that the true story is just not a very good lie. See, if you're gonna like fabricate a story in the first century, you don't have a bunch of women be your key witnesses. 
Women at this time were not allowed to be, they couldn't testify in court. They weren't highly thought of. You don't like pick your key witness and be like, uh, yeah, those ladies over there, that'll work. Like you wouldn't do that. You would pick somebody with some street cred. You'd pick some, a guy because it's the first century and that's what you're gonna do. But God knows what is happening. And these women are faithful. When all the other disciples chickened out and left, they're still there. Now they're following a little bit at a distance, so they're not real close. So they're a little afraid as well. But they're there, and they see what they need to see. If you're going to make up a story, you make up a better one than this. They weren't making up a story. They're just telling the truth. It's other things. I don't know, maybe, maybe you didn't catch it. When I read from John 19 and even Mark, there seems to be a discrepancy. Mark tells us that Joseph of Arimathea took courage and he went and asked for the body of Jesus. John tells us that because it was the day of preparation, the Jews asked that everybody would be taken off of the cross. So which was it? Well, one, I think it's easily reconciled. One, like we said, Joseph of Arimathea is a respected member. Maybe he could speak on behalf of the Jews and he knows his political theater just like anybody else. And he knows, I know how I can get Pilate to get me the body of Jesus. Hey, you know us Jews, we don't like dead bodies hanging up on our Sabbath. Can we get that taken care of? And he asked for the body of Jesus that way. And possibly that's how it, how it does that. But if you are gonna fabricate a story, right? And like, Mark, come here. Matthew, come here. Luke, Luke, John, all right, come here. We're all gonna write these gospels. Make sure we got our story straight. You don't have those kind of discrepancies. You don't plan like that. You don't do that. You just tell the truth. In fact, when when interrogators bring witnesses into rooms and interrogate them, they're trained to look if the stories match up too well. Because if stories match up too well, it's usually an indication these two guys have talked. And they're in on it together, and they've worked out all the kinks. But having just slight discrepancies... They need to be explainable, like what I just did. But these slight discrepancies actually prove the authenticity of the Gospels. They show us that they're just men who are just trying to tell the truth. They're just telling the story the way that they know how to tell this story. And that's what we're trying to do. And that's what Christians have been doing for thousands of years. We're just trying to tell the truth. We're not trying to fabricate anything or bring it all together. We're just telling the story the the way that we know how to tell it. And what's so amazing in all this is that the hard thing in the first century that people had to believe wasn't so much the resurrection. It was the fact that the Son of God would die. That God would die for us was just an amazing thing that no one really believed. I want to challenge us that we would not lose sight of that this morning. Jesus died for you that you might resonate with the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy 1, verse 15. It says this, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. That is me this morning. Moving is a particular kind of squeezing. (laughs) It's been a hard week. I wish I could say that when I was squeezed, all the things that came out of Jesus are what came out of me this week. It's just not true. But oh, 
God to display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. And that's what I am. And if you're a Christian, that's what you are today too. You're a sinner saved by grace. And may we all see ourselves as being the foremost or the chief of sinners. And we would say that God might display his perfect patience through this imperfect man or woman who stands before him, who's just trying to tell the truth. And that's what we want to see. That in the cross of Christ, we see the goodness and the grace and the love of Christ.